Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. All right, time to jump into the sermon today. Um, We're preaching on Jesus is life. We're looking at Colossians, um, all of Colossians, the whole thing. Uh, Man, three months we've been digging through Colossians. We're finally on chapter three. We're going to start today. Chapter three, verse nine says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Do not lie to each other. Do not lie. The word lie there, it's, uh, it's pseudomai. You have to pronounce it with the P. It's P-S, pseudomize. You got to spit at people when you say it, pseudomize. Um, and it's where we get our word pseudo from. You might have heard of that. You know, like uh, you have a pseudo Super Bowl ring, which means it's not really a Super Bowl ring. You're just pretending that it's a Super Bowl ring. So pseudo means fake. It means it's trying to look like one thing, but really it's something else. Well, I, I always wondered in English why it's spelled like that. Like, why is there a P and an S when we never pronounce the P? We just say pseudo. Well, this is why, because it comes from this Greek word, which actually does have a P and an S, because there's, there's a letter in the Greek alphabet, we don't have in our, our alphabet, called psi. And so it's pronounced exactly like that, because English folks don't like to spit on people when we're talking. The Greeks didn't care about that. So anyway, we got pseudo, and it basically means to be fake. And he's saying, don't be fake with each other. Touch somebody, tell them, don't be fake. That's right, don't be fake. Like... We don't want any fake Christians. Paul says, and then what's interesting, though, is that this is at the conclusion of two of Paul's three lists. We've been talking about this. There's three big lists in Colossians 3. The first one is a list found in verse 5 where he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he says sexual immorality, and he goes right down the list. He starts at sexual immorality, but then he gets to the root of sexual immorality, which is greed. And so he moves all the way through that. We we preached on that a couple of weeks ago. And then he has a secondary list where he says you need to put off some things. In verse 8, he says, uh, now you must rid yourself of such things. So there's some things we need to kill, and then there's some things we need to rid ourselves or lay down. There's some things we need to lay down. And he starts with anger there, and he moves from the inside to the outside. He goes to slander. So anger is the root of slander. Slander is the surface thing that we need to lay down. Now, those are two lists of five things each, all right? And he has one more list of five things found in verse 12. We're going to get to that next week, and that's the good stuff. Finally, somebody says, finally, he's going to preach some good news. That's the good stuff that we need to pick up, all right? So there's some things we need to kill, five things. There's five things we need to lay down. Then there's five things in verse 12 that we need to pick up and clothe ourselves with. By the way, anytime you see the number five in the Bible, it's often the word, it's the the number in numerology, it's the number for grace. So I just love how this whole chapter is filled with the grace of God, so that none of this stuff is by your own works, none of this stuff is by your own determination, but all of this is the victory of of the grace of God over your life, over sexual immorality, over anger, over greed, over all of that stuff. God's grace is bigger and better, helping us kill stuff, lay stuff down, and pick some stuff up. Sound good? All right, so, so he just got done with the bad stuff, the bad list, and he's, he's rounding out, he's bringing that to a bit of a conclusion, and his conclusion from 
laying aside the bad list, it's interesting. He says, so because you, when you lay all this aside, the goal is that you would not be fake to each other. It's interesting that, that God's goal for our personal holiness is something called community. That we would be able to enter into community and not be fake and not have to cover up and not have to pretend and not have to look a certain way or sound a certain way or be afraid of what people think of us. Instead, he says, look, the goal of all of these two lists, which are pretty personal, sexual immorality, greed, that's pretty personal, uh, anger all the way to slander, that's pretty personal. But the purpose of this so that you can enter into Christian community and not be fake and not lie to each other. And so he says, when you get to this, this place, you're not going to lie to, to each other because you have taken off your old self. In other words, the you before you met Jesus, the you before Jesus came into your life, he says you need to take that off. You need to put that off, your old self with its practices. That's two things, the person, the old person you were, and the practices, the practice stuff you used to do. That is really encompassing his previous two lists. So the practices of the old self is sexual immorality and greed, that whole list. And then the person, though, that you were was an angry person coming out of anger. And so he says we need to lay down both the practices and the person. I love how the grace of God is powerful enough to deal not just with the stuff we do, but with the stuff that we are. So wherever you're at in this journey, wherever you're at in this journey, I'll just tell you the grace of God is big enough to deal with the stuff that you are doing, but also with the stuff that you are. The grace of God is powerful enough for that. He says, we need to take off our old self with its practices and put on the new self. Put on the new self, which is being renewed. That's interesting. To renew means to make new again. And so it's good to have a new self that God gives you at conversion, that God gives you when you put your faith in him, when you receive the grace of God by faith and you receive that grace, then you receive this new self. And that's what we're celebrating today when, when we're baptizing Clarissa. We're celebrating the new self that she has become. But Christianity, the journey with God is not a one-time event. It's not a baptism. It's not a prayer that you pray and now you're into the club and you have this new self. That's great. It's good to have a new self, but you, your new self's going to need to be made new. The journey with God is a moment by moment, a day by day. You may have a new self, but that doesn't mean that, that you don't need to be renewed. This is what Paul says. He says you have a new self, but that new self has to be made new every single day. It's a constant renewal. How does that happen? He says through knowledge, being renewed in knowledge. Knowledge is what you think it is. It's to know stuff, which is why you're here listening to somebody teach on the word of God, which is hopefully, hopefully why you read the Bible when you're at home. Because you're seeking knowledge. Because this knowledge, the knowledge of the word of God is different. And so faith, which is necessary to access grace, for by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is necessary to access grace. Well, how, how does faith come? By hearing and hearing from the word of God. So you have to get some knowledge to renew your mind, to make it new again. And so that's why you're listening to us preach. That's why you're coming to church to renew your mind in knowledge. And then he says to renew your mind in knowledge in the image of its creator. So the purpose, the goal is to start looking like Jesus. Jesus is life. Jesus is life-giving. You ought to be life-giving too. Jesus is forgiving. You ought to be forgiving too. 
Jesus, Jesus said, Jesus said that he left us a path to walk that we might walk in his steps. James tells us that if anyone claims to be in Christ, he must also live like he lived. And this is not to put condemnation on you. This is to let you know that, yeah, Jesus walked on water. You can walk on water too. Whatever Jesus did, really literal, literal water. Maybe, I guess, if you need to. I mean, whatever Jesus said, greater works than these will those do who follow after me. So Jesus left us a pattern so that we can be like him, to be in his image, to do his works, to heal the sick, to take care of the homeless, to, to spread the love of God, to proclaim the truth of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is near. We are his, his image bearers. We are in the image of our creator. Uh, and in, in ancient times, in these times, in, 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 in the Colossian world, uh, they, they would have had certain Roman emperors. And I'm going to talk about this in a little bit. But one thing that every Roman emperor did is that in all the major cities, they would make an image of themselves and place it in the city. Because you, living in little Colosh, probably will never journey to Rome to see the emperor Claudius. And so Claudius would have an image of himself in that town so that you would remember what he looks like. He was always much larger than life. He was always fearsome, you know, and, and so, that, so that you had a visual of, of, of the one who was ruling you. And this is what Paul says. We are being made in the image. You may be in Colossus, you may be in Rome, you may be in Austin, Texas, but God wants his image all around the world so that everyone, because he, he's ruling the entire world, he wants the, everyone to have a visual representation of himself. So that's what he's trying to do with us. Uh, that, that's why victory and the grace of God over these things is not just a personal victory. He's not just interested in fixing your personal life so that you feel better. He's interested in us coming together, not lying to each other, so that as a group, we can reflect the wonder and beauty of Jesus and renew this city. And there can be an image of Jesus in South Austin. And so that's, that's the ultimate goal. He says, I want, uh, we, are, we are being made in the image of his creator. So, so, so lay aside, lay aside this, this, this stuff and put on the new Self. Now, in verse 11, he gets a little political, and we'll get into this here in a second. But he says here, meaning within this new image, in this new place, this new creation, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is his point. So, let's go back to verse 9. Do not lie to each other. The word... Uh, for, for, for lie is pseudomai, don't be fake. And the reason why we shouldn't be fake is Paul says because we have taken off our old self. That word to take off, it's the same word used in chapter 2 verse 15 when it talks about what Jesus did to the principalities and powers, which I preached on that, I don't know, earlier in the year. Um, a while ago, uh, we were in chapter 2. Uh, and it, I don't know if you remember, there's a sermon entitled Jackets and Beads. 
It was kind of risque. We talked about Bacchus. It got a little, a little rowdy. But we also talked about the jackets. It fit in perfectly. The religious jackets that we like to wear to cover up who we really are. Because in Colossians 2.15, it says that Jesus, um, I think in the King James says spoiled. Uh, in, the, in, in the NIV, it says he, 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 he uh, displayed. But it, it's the same word. It is to strip naked the principalities and powers. To strip naked the traps that Jesus pulled back the covers on the traps and let us see the trap for what it really was. That's what Jesus did. Now, Paul's using the exact same word in chapter 3 about what we ought to do. Okay, Jesus pulled back the covers on the traps and exposed it for what it was. Okay, so now you need to take off the traps off of your life and expose yourself for who you really are. I mean, literally leave your clothes on. I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about that. It's getting hot in here, but leave on all your clothes. Uh, <laughs> I, but so we're not taking shirts and pants off. Instead, we're taking our old self off. We're taking off our old defensive nature. We're taking off our old need to be right. We're taking off our old need to be thought of as, as good and as, and, as, and as perfect. We're taking off our armor. We're taking off our defenses because in Christian, the church ought to be a safe place where people can come in who are struggling with things, who are dealing with things, and they can actually be vulnerable. There can be vulnerability among the people of God. It's weird to me that in the one place where there ought to be a stripping off of all the labels and all this stuff, it seems weird that somehow at some point we added more stuff to cover up more. It's like, well, if you, you know, they, they, they hand you your card, apostle so-and-so, you know. Oh, great. So we put on the jacket of apostle so that maybe you won't see through me as a, as a human. So here's my title. Here's my gift. Here's my tongue. Here's my interpretation. Here's my prayer language. Here's my, and we, we, we have, we build up all this stuff so that people don't actually see this. And yet this was supposed to be the place where you could be safe to be yourself, where you could unveil, take off your old self and your new self, which probably isn't very mature just yet, is going to be seen and heard and known. And that's okay. Vulnerability is powerful in what it does for the community because vulnerability is basically, it's the valley between the mountain of reward on this side which the reward is community, true relationship, and the mountain of danger on this side, which is rejection. Vulnerability is the valley that runs between rejection and community. And it's a risk. You take a risk every time you're vulnerable with people, which is why you shouldn't be vulnerable with everybody, which is why you should find a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, honest church that believes people are worth it. I, I know of one of those. Um, and you should join it, and you should be open with people, and you shouldn't be defensive and always trying to posture yourself to look the best way possible. Uh, vulnerability is so powerful. I think Brene Brown kind of opened up some, some stuff on, on vulnerability on uh, her TED Talk. She did a TED Talk on vulnerability, talking about the power of vulnerability in community and in relationship. And it is very powerful. There's a story uh, that I, I read a while back about this 10-year-old girl. She had a, she had a little blanket. It was, a, it, was, it was her lovey. I don't know if you guys ever had blankets or loveys or like like her mom's friend made it for her when she was born it had seen her through many sleepless nights and fearful scared of the dark it got lost at the 
at the park once, you know, it was all ratty, and it, I mean, she slept with it every night, and she was going over to, to a girl's sleepover, and she was debating whether or not to take it with her, and so she took it, stuffed it in her bag, and, and she's there in the sleepover, it's getting late, they're about to watch a movie, girls are kind of um, settling in, and so she, she's wrestling with whether or not she should go, like, unzip her bag and get her lovey out, because, why? Because the risk of rejection. Because the risk, because little girls are mean. I'll just tell you that right now. Just straight up, I don't know what, what the deal is, but Lord, they need Colossians 3. Uh, they need some anger issues dealing. <laughs> little boys aren't any better, I'm just saying. Uh, I just, I understand boys more, so I, I see it coming, you know. <laughs> I don't see it. Anyway, so she's like, she's wrestling with it. And so she goes back, she finally goes back to the room, works up the courage, grab her lovey, puts it under her arm, walks back into the living room. And of course, one of the girls says, what's that? And so all eyes are on her. And she just sort of bravely just shared about how her mom's best friend made it for her when she was born. And had seen her through all these nights. It was ratty. Her grandma had sewn it at this spot and all this stuff. And, and, and the girls didn't make fun of her. Why? Because she's being vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable with the right people, they won't make fun of you. They won't laugh at you. Instead, one by one, those girls went back to their bags, started unzipping their bags and pulling out their old like ratty you know, teddy bears and loveys and all this stuff. Because why? Because God sometimes is waiting for somebody to be vulnerable. Like we say that church is a safe place, but when nobody ever shares anything, you might say it, but you don't feel that. You know what I mean? And the one person who does share something, everybody kind of looks at them sideways, you know what I'm saying? Like that's not a safe place. It's only safe when people are vulnerable and open and say, you know what? I am struggling with something too. I got something in my bag too. This is what I'm carrying around. This is what I've been carrying around all week long. There's power in vulnerability because you have somebody who can... Some people are waiting for somebody else to let them know it's okay to be them. You know what I mean? So sometimes your vulnerability is the key to someone else recognizing it's okay to be me. Oh, oh, you know, you struggle with anxiety. Me too. You, you, you've had suicide thoughts. Me too. You, you, you have anger issues. Me too. Like, like sometimes people are just waiting for permission to be themselves. And when the church is never vulnerable, when nobody ever says boo, when nobody ever acts like, everybody acts like everything's all good, the, the, the problem is twofold. Number one, you don't re experience the grace of God in your life. And number two, nobody else feels they have permission to reach out for the grace of God either. And we have an entire community of people who are just trying to make it on their own. When you have access to unlimited grace, unlimited power, there's a story in Mark chapter 10 uh, of, of Jesus walking from Jericho. If we could put that up, I, I didn't use this in the earlier service, but Mark 10, 46 says that Jesus and his disciples, they came to Jericho. I, I think that's interesting. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. Isn't it interesting? Like half a verse, we have a journey to Jericho, a stay apparently in Jericho, and an exit from Jericho. And nothing happened. I, I, sometimes I, 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 I think the writer is, you know, he's like, I, I really need to include this. Because this is setting up, I'm, I'm setting up a contrast here. Here Jesus goes into a city, stays in the city, we don't know how long. But nothing happened in that city. And so Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd are leaving the city. And that's when a man, blind man, by the name of Bartimaeus 
That's when we're introduced to him. A blind man who's sitting by the road begging. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. Going to the next verse was sitting by the roadside begging. That's what that was very common in those days. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, <laughs> this is interesting to me because Bartimaeus, Bart's not the only guy on the side of the road. <laughs> Bart also has his friend Bob right next to him. And, and Bo and, and, I don't know, Billy. And, uh, and then a guy, he doesn't know his name, so he just calls him Bro. Broski, and like, like, like it's like you gotta understand that that Bartimaeus isn't the only blind guy on the side of the road. He's not the only lame guy. He's not. This is where people who couldn't go to work. This is where they sat by the road begging. So they're they're sitting out there at the intersections of Austin, or this is the basically this is the largest intersection for this city they're outside the city and 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 there's this large crowd moving and bart hears that jesus is in the crowd and 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 what's what's interesting to me is that most of the time okay if you are begging and if you're blind one it's everything's dark bart is in the dark and he hears this large crowd of people walking along the road guess what that's jackpot if you're a beggar, the best thing you want is famous people to come through because this large crowd will come with them. And when there's a large crowd around Jesus, man, they can really put some stuff in your tin cup. They can really help you make it through the day. They can really give you a handout that will really be substantially helpful to you. And so what's interesting is like all the other beggars on the side of the road are thinking, crowd, I get stuff in my, in, in my cup. And yet Bart ignores the crowd. I, I wonder how many of us miss the unlimited resource of the grace and the power of God because we're too busy trying to get handouts from the crowd of people that like to hang out around Jesus. And I just was hoping the pastor would just say something that would just bless me. And, and I was hoping somebody would just compliment my new shoes. And I was just hoping they would have a program for my 11 and 3 quarters year old because they, you know, like, I wonder how many times we're looking for handouts from the crowd when there is unlimited power in the middle of that crowd. And, and Bart cries out, Jesus, son of David, give me some alms now. Because that's what everybody, everybody else is looking for their need to be met. And Bart says, no, I need more than just alms. Alms will get me through this day. Yeah, will feed me for a moment. But I need the mercy of God. There's some vulnerability in there where he cries out. He's like, I need mercy. That's what it means to be vulnerable. It means, it, it, it doesn't just mean to pour out your emotional baggage on people. It means to understand that Jesus is the only one who can truly meet my need. And if you're around me, you're going to hear about my hunger for Jesus. If you happen to be sitting next to me, if you happen to be Bob or Billy or bro, you're going to hear about my need for God's mercy. And, he, and, he, and he, it's interesting, it's like, like there's, there's pride at every level. It doesn't matter how poor you are. There's, there's a certain level of pride that every human likes to carry from the CEO to the unemployed homeless person. There's a certain bit of dignity that we like to have. And, and Bart just let go of all of his dignity. Because unlike the, even the people in the crowd, he called out for the mercy of God. Have mercy. I, mean, I wonder how many in the crowd needed mercy. 
<laughs> Probably, I don't know, 100 out of 100. How many of them were sick? A lot of them. How many were blind? Several of them. How many were lame? Many of them. And only Bart lifted up his voice. And Bart lifts up his voice. And what catches me is that it says after, after he, he calls on him, many began to rebuke him. So the religious police came in, said, man, you're being too loud. You're disrupting. You're disturbing our peace. Uh, you're messing with the ceremony here. You're kind of you're drawing attention to yourself. And we don't want that. We want, we, want, we want it to be all about Jesus. And so they're rebuking him, told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. <laughs> like like my, my old pastor used to say, like his legs didn't, his eyes didn't work. And his legs probably didn't work very well. But his, his lungs were working just fine. So he's using what he has to cry out to Jesus. Jesus hears that. And Jesus stopped. God Almighty stopped in his tracks. When somebody just finally said, this is where I am and this is really what I need. And, and Jesus stops and he said, call him. This is what's interesting to me. Who did he say that to? The guys that were around him. Now, 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 now. if Jesus was within earshot of Bart, Jesus could have called back to Bart. Right? I mean, I mean, how awesome would that have been? If, 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 if out of the darkness, Bart hears the voice of Jesus calling his name. Boy, I could have preached that. That would have been fun. Because no matter where you are, darkness, Jesus is calling your name. He's calling you right now. But no. Jesus turns to one of the people next to him and says, would you, would you go get him? <laughs> the same guys who were just rebuking him are now sent to go like collect him because he's blind he's not he needs somebody to take him by the hand and lead him to Jesus and so he says would you go get get this guy and so these guys now you gotta think about this from Bart's perspective Bart's in the dark right the only way he knew Jesus was nearby is because somebody told him that Jesus was nearby Sometimes you're not going to feel the presence of God. Sometimes you're not even going to see God working. You just have to take it by faith when somebody says, hey, this is what God's doing in your life. This is what's going on. I'm telling you, he's walking by you. And he's not walking by you because he doesn't want to bless you. He's walking by you waiting for you to call out to him, to be honest with him, to be vulnerable, to show your hunger and not just your religion. And so, and so he calls out to him. And then the next thing he hears is somebody else out of the dark saying, hey, be quiet. Be quiet. We told you he was coming. We didn't want you to, to act like that. And so immediately he starts hearing. But he doesn't obey that voice. But then the next voice he hears are those same people saying, hey, look at the, look at the, the, the verse. It says, cheer up. <laughs> cheer up. Yeah, we have good news, man. Get on your feet. He's calling you. <laughs> Bart's in the dark, remember? He doesn't see Jesus. He doesn't hear Jesus. All he hears are these people. And this is, this is something else that I, that, that I, I, think is, I think it's another side of vulnerability. See, I think oftentimes we believe the only side of vulnerability is for us to sort of pour out our emotional baggage. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. And some people are easier, are, are better at doing that. They find it easier than others. But there is a whole other true biblical vulnerability is found in Colossians 3, 9, which says, do not lie to each other. True biblical vulnerability, uh, of vulnerability is found in 
a love for the truth. So what's interesting is like, yeah, some of us need to be like Bart. We need to lift up our voice and say, I need God and anybody around me that can help me get to him. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm in. That's true. But some of us, I think there's a vulnerability by these people too. Because these are the guys who were just telling him to be quiet. And now Jesus recruits them to go tell him that, that hey, it's good news. Now, 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 if you're one of those people, you're thinking, uh, Bart's not going to listen to me. I was just telling Bart to be quiet. Bart's going to think I'm playing a game on him. And I'm going to lead him over here to the river and then push him in, you know, like I did last week. Like, <laughs> you, there's, there's, once again, vulnerability is risk. It's not just emotional baggage. It's risk, the risk of rejection. And so these guys were tasked with a different mission. Jesus says, okay, I want you to go tell Bart I'm calling him and bring him to me. And I feel like for many of us, this is where we aren't good at being vulnerable. That Jesus has told us, hey, you know that guy you're, you're, you're working with? You've been hearing him cry for quite a while. Can you tell him that I'm calling him? And can you maybe take him by the hand? I know you haven't always had a great relationship, and you've probably said some things you probably shouldn't have, but, but, but could, you, could you bring him to me? There's, there's, there's this risk, yes, uh, yes, of putting on fake strength and acting like we're all big and bad and we're perfect. But there's also, it's kind of trendy right now, actually, to pretend like we're just as messed up as everybody else. It, to, to be ignorant and to be unaware, it's kind of cool right now. You'll have a lot of friends if you don't know any answers. Because if you don't stand up for anything, you won't offend anybody. And if you just kind of just go with the flow, if you just see people crying out on the side of the road, man, it's tough, man. It's really tough. It's really tough, tough to be over there. You know, if, if, you, if, if, if you're just an ear to listen and you're never a voice to speak, <laughs> this is the vulnerability. We don't send the text message inviting people to church because we're afraid that people will think we're judging them if we ask them to come to church because it's like, oh, no, we think that, oh, they, 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 no. And, and we're so afraid of rejection. So sometimes it's not fake strength we put on, it's fake weakness. But man, if you found Jesus, if he's, if he's been impactful in your life, if he's made the difference in your life, if you know the cure to the cancer of the soul, and you walk around acting as if you don't, because you don't want to offend people who are clearly sick and clearly coming to you for help, and clearly crying out on their Facebook feed, and clearly, and you just act as if you don't really know the answer. I don't know. I think that's a whole other version of vulnerability that we need to get over. We need to get over it. We need to love the truth so much that we lovingly tell people the truth. That, hey, did you know Jesus can deal with, 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 with your issue right here? Did you know that the Word of God can deal with this issue, the grace of God is powerful enough to deal with whatever sin you're going through. Bart would have never got to Jesus if those guys hadn't gone to get him because Jesus was not going to interrupt the process. Jesus stops, he waits, and he sends us to the side of the road. He sends us to the side of our schools and the sides of our neighborhoods and the sides of our houses and barbecues and picnics. And he asks us, would you, would you tell them that I'm calling them? 
that I love them, that I have a plan for them, that I've already provided a way for them, and that I have unlimited grace for them. And then Paul says, we've stripped off, we've taken off our old self, and we've put on this new self, which we're going to talk about more uh, next week. And then he says, here in this place, this new self, verse 11, there is no Gentile or Jew. That's actually, the word there is Greek, or Jew. Uh, technically, I think it's Hellenistic is the, is the Greek word, but it's, it's talking about Greek thought or a Greek way of approaching reality. He says there's no Greek or Jew. Now, this is also interesting. This is another list of five topics, if you will. Paul's given us a list of things that are not in the kingdom of God, things that are not in the family of God. Once again, Paul kind of likes to be negative. So he started off a little bit positive today, but now he's saying, okay, look, there's some stuff that's in your culture, but it's not in this culture. It's, it's a reality that you face when you walk out of these doors. It's a reality you face when you're at work and when you go to the voting, when you go to the polling booth. It, it's, it's a reality, but it's not a part of this culture. So, so don't take that culture into this culture because it, it doesn't belong here. Those things don't exist in here, in this new man. And Paul gets wonderfully political. <laughs> uh, 2,000 years later, and people still don't like to talk about religion and politics. And Paul just blends, the Holy Spirit blends them all into this glorious conclusion of why we need to let go of the old man. Because when you have the old man, you identify by one of these things. And so he, he, he jumps in and he says, first and foremost, there are these two ways of thinking or approaching life. There's the Judaistic way and there is the Hellenistic way or the, the, Greek, the Greek way. Um, uh, ben Shapiro actually wrote a book recently on, on these two thoughts, school of, schools of thought. It's really interesting. He talks about the two cities, Jerusalem and Athens. Jerusalem produced Judaism, uh, which is the, the tradition, the belief in tradition. The belief in religion, the belief in a God, in a supreme being, the belief in faith, right? Abraham, the father of the faith. That's Judaism, especially around surrounding tradition. Uh, if, I, if I celebrate these feast days, if I celebrate this Sabbath, if I don't eat that, if I do eat that, if I do this different stuff, then I am in right relationship to God. And, and, and I will be successful in my reality. That's, that's the, 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 basically the Jewish approach. That's one sort of polar opposite uh, in the world. And then on the other extreme thought of that is this the living intention is this Hellenistic thought, which really came birthed um, out, of, out of Athens and out of Greek philosophers about 500 years before Christ. Um, Socrates, Plato especially were some of those uh, that really birthed some of this. And it was sort of an idea that if we could just, we, that if we can just get the right philosophy, if we can wrap our heads around our reality, then we will be able to supersede our reality and become better people. It's like rationalism, right? Uh, and, and, and both of these have some good points, which is Ben Shapiro's book. It's like, you, you know, you really, a good society would live kind of in the tension of both of those cities, which is kind of cool. So you ought to check it out. But for my fact, Paul doesn't say both of these cities. He says neither one. He says, look, look, if, 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 if you're a Jew and if you've been doing everything right by the book and you've been following, you've been going to church faithfully, you've been doing, lovely, that doesn't count. 
It just doesn't count. Why doesn't that count? Because Christ is all, is what he says. Christ is all and in all. So Christ is more powerful than your particular brand of righteousness. Christ is more powerful than your faithfulness. Christ is more powerful than your prayer life or anything that you can present to him. Christ is all. He paid the price for your salvation. He is your sanctifier. He is your sustainer. He is your redeemer. And he will not have secondary gods next to him. Your tradition cannot stand up to him. And so he is all. He doesn't care about your tradition. And it's it's good, and there's there's benefits to it, absolutely. But Christ is all. And held under the candlelight of Jesus, it vanishes and dissipates as the shadow that it is. Christ is all. But then, traditionalism versus rationalism. uh, But then, on the Greek side of things, your ability to reason and understand is not nearly as important as your ability to have faith in Jesus. In our generation, man, we're really all about wrapping our heads around it. If we can just, if we can debate it, if we can discuss it, then we'll reach this great conclusion. And guess what? That's not a new idea. Plato, Plato, Plato wrote that one story. I don't know, probably in junior high you read about it, the Plato's cave. It was about 500 years before Christ. Plato theorized that our reality was essentially uh, akin to um, these three men that grew up in a cave. And so they're chained to a wall. They can't turn around, but, but they're, 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 they've never been out of this cave their entire life. He said, this is all humanity. It's like we, we're born in a cave. We're chained. We live in this cave. We can't see what's behind us, but what's behind us is this fire behind us that's projecting light onto the wall in front of us. And there are people behind us that have these like cardboard cutouts. It wasn't cardboard, but these different cutouts of like a horse or a book or whatever. And and they are constantly walking behind us and we're watching these shadows in our lives. And we're valuing shadows, and we're and we're we they, they, like uh, his 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 guys in the cave even created this game where they where they were trying to decide who was smart or who could describe which shadow the best, and and it's so he, he, he Plato said our entire reality is that. Like your house is just a shadow. Your car is a shadow. Your chariots are a shadow. Everything is, is meaningless and pointless, right? It's, it's kind of his, Plato's version. It's like it's all just a shadow. But Plato theorized, one, he said it, this is problematic because we can't break free from our chains. So we're stuck gazing at shadows, which I think is interesting. But he said, he theorized if somebody could actually break free of the chains, they would walk out of the cave, they would step into the sun, and they would realize that everything they had just been valuing and loving and pursuing was just a shadow of things which are actually real. And they would be so blown away, and they would be so like, oh my goodness, they would go back into the cave, and they would try to convince the other two guys to come out of the cave. But Plato said that if somebody ever actually came into the cave from outside the cave, that those within the cave would not believe the stuff he said, and they would eventually try to kill him. It's interesting, 500 years before Jesus came into our cave and tried to liberate us from the shadows of traditionalism and rationalism and tried to take us into the real, what did we do? He told us about this kingdom of heaven, of reality and love and light and acceptance and forgiveness and truth. And we, we killed him because there's nothing better than our shadows. But Paul says, as good as some of that philosophy is and as helpful as it is to understand some things, at the end of the day, your, your rational reasoning is not any better than the actual person who has come into your cave to set you free. Jesus is more important than your ability to theorize about life 
and argue and debate philosophy. Jesus is more important than that. And then he says there's no circumcised or uncircumcised. That's, those, those are primarily religious ad, ad adherence differences. So, so in that day, in the early church, man, some people were like, I'm circum- I've been circumcised, therefore I kind of have a leg up on, <laughs> no pun intended, I kind of have taken a step up above you all. I'm more spiritual <laughs> than all you. Sometimes you say stuff and then you think about it. Uh, but that was the thing, though. It was, it, was like, it was like in those days, to be circumcised meant that your parents, because you didn't have anything to do with it, your parents were like real religious. and They raised you in a home where you understood Yahweh, Jehovah. These other pagans, they came out of, you know, Athens, and they're talking about Plato and all this nonsense. But you know Jehovah, and that is true. But Paul says, man, your, 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 your Christian background is, does not help here. Because Jesus is more important than your background. Jesus is more important than what your parents raised you in. Yeah, be thankful for stuff that you learned. I mean, that's just lovely. But Jesus is all. And your parents can't bring anything to the table of Jesus. Your parents bring nothing to the cross. Your history brings nothing to the cross. You stand before the cross completely stripped, completely naked, just like everybody else. And Paul says there is no religious differences. There is no religious hierarchy. And then he says... Uh, there is no barbarian. Now, we think of barbarian as the word barbaric, right? Which means like uncivilized or like you eat without a fork and a spoon, I guess. I don't know. It's like uncivilized people, people who are kind of crazy. Uh, they're, they're, they're barbarians. Well, well, technically in this day, 2,000 years ago, the word barbarian was used to describe non-Romans. By the way, it was not a compliment, which is why today it's still a very negative connotation. Because in their mind, Rome was the greatest civilization that had ever come to planet Earth dominance, and it was. And they said, man, everybody who's not Roman, they just are not with it as much as we are. And they truly weren't. Rome had running water. They had water fountains 2,000 years ago. Push this lever and water starts squirting up. I mean, you know, so they were like really advanced. And they were so proud of their advancements. They were so proud of their country. And Paul said, hey, by the way, there's no Americans <laughs> either. <gasps> now, wait a minute. Does that mean we don't have a wall? Does he, is he for a wall? Is he against a wall? Does he want a wall? What's up with the wall? <laughs> Immediately gets political. And this was a political term. Because he's talking to Romans, whether they're Jews or Greeks, doesn't matter. They're proud to be Romans. And Paul said, yeah, you know that thing you're so proud of? That doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. God doesn't look at a person's passport (laughs) when determining their value and their worth and his love for them. He doesn't check your passport because all of us have been born on planet earth and all of us are eventually, we have a home in heaven. All of us are illegal aliens of our our, uh, eventual destination. None of us were born in that place. We are all being grafted into, what, 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 is, what does Peter say? You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Great, you may be American, you may be Mexican, you may be Nigerian, you may be whatever nation you were born in. Like, that, that doesn't matter. The truth is now that you have come under the blood of Jesus, your flag is not some stars and some stripes. Your flag is a cross, an empty tomb, and a lot of holy blood that has been spilt for your redemption. Christ is all. You can't bring your Americanism next to him. Your patriotism means nothing at the cross. 
It means something out there, sure, and there's benefits to it, absolutely. There's cultural benefits to different cultures. But, but in here, in this new life, in this resurrected life, you can't come in with your Americanism because there are no Americans here. There are no un-Americans here. There are no, like it's so interesting to me. He just cuts right at that. And, and, and if, in case you thought that it wasn't political back in the day to say this, you have to understand that this is written in 62 A.D., to a Roman province. Colossians is a Roman province. Well, in 54 AD, just eight years earlier, <laughs> just eight years earlier, a new emperor had risen to power. He was a young guy, charismatic. He, he was a singer. He, he was an actor. When, when, he, when he spoke, I mean, he just whipped up the crowd. He was also a great army general. He had the favor of the Senate. He was voted upon after Claudius died, and he was the new guy. And he really, he ran his campaign on hope. To him, it was, it was a new day. Because Rome was the greatest civilization of all time up until that point. And Rome had world dominance. But Rome's economy had started to sink. Rome was, 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 was sinking economically. They were sinking morally. There was a time when they couldn't even get anybody to sign up for the army. And so that's when one of the emperors eventually outlawed marriage because people just, they didn't want to go to war. And he's like, well, I'm fine. You can't get married, you know. And so, I mean, they're just trying to, so there was this, like, like, like momentum, as they say, was, was, was at a, a low. But there was this new guy, and he had so much promise, which is interesting because so much in chapter 1 of Colossians is talking about hope. Paul's talking about hope, but you know what? He never ties that hope to a political figure. He never ties that hope to an institution or a national identity. He ties the hope to Jesus, things above, Christ. That's where the hope is. Why would he say that? Well, because eight years prior, the guy running on hope was a guy by the name of Nero. <laughs> you might have heard of him. Uh, historians, Roman historians, put him down as one of the most cruel uh, emperors ever. The only, up until that time, the only, the, the only emperor to commit suicide in 68 AD. He lasted for 15 years. He is credited by most of the Roman historians as having started the fire in 60, 64 AD that burnt much of the, the sort of marketplace district of Rome. It lasted for six days. And by that point, people were so burned out on hope that actually one historian said people were throwing themselves in the fire. Man, when you put your hope in a person, when you put your hope in a political agenda, I'm telling you, it goes straight to that person's head, it goes straight to that party's head, and then they start looking out for themselves. And when Nero started looking out for himself, the way he was going to make Rome great was he was going to get rid of everybody who wasn't Roman. And so that's one of the reasons why they theorized that he started the fire was to blame it on the Christians and other people that he didn't like. And so he, uh, by Christian historian terms, he's the most ruthless persecutor of Christians. Uh, he, he, would, he, would, he would feed them to the lions. He, he used them for the games. And then he, he had so many Christians to kill that he didn't have time to kill them. So he used them as human candles in the streets of Rome. So literally, tie them up to a post and uh, pour some, some flammable stuff on them and light them on fire at night. He lit his gardens. He had massive gardens. They were lit often many nights by humans, Christians, being burned alive. I'm telling you, man, when, when, when you can look at recent history, you can look at Stalin, you can look at some people, when they get ultimate power and people put ultimate hope in them and this is going to be our savior and this is our guy, 
It doesn't take long for it to turn inward and become a fearful, scary thing. Nero eventually ended up getting kicked out of his country by his own people. And that's when they tried him for his crimes and he committed suicide uh, in, a, in entirely another country. Why? Because, because we are, there, are, there are no barbarians here. Rome, as good as it was, is not our hope. America, as good as it is, is not our hope. Mexico, whatever country you're from, I'm telling you, we, our, our national identity is Christ. Christ is all. He's the only hope. The only hope for our world. Democracy is not our hope. <gasps> Democracy will not save us. Politics will not save us. Christ is all. He's the only one worthy of our faith. He's the only one who's been faithful and proven himself over and over again. Paul says, let me tell you, man, there's no, there's no barbarians. And then he says there's no Scythians. Scythians were a particular group of people who were barbarians. They were non-Romans, but they were especially hated. Scythian is an ethnic term. It has to do with their skin color. They were north of Rome uh, in what was then called the Caucasus. On my birth certificate, it says that I am Caucasian. That's where the term comes from. It's like Ukraine and Russia area of the world. So literally, Scripture says there are no white people in this kingdom. Now, he chose white people because at that time, they were the most hated, the most looked down upon. But that can go throughout all of history. In the kingdom of God, there's no white people or black people or brown people. Or, yeah, I think there's the, 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 the only color of people is the color of the blood of Jesus that has washed over us. We are not divided by our skin color. We're not divided by what side of the tracks we grew up on. We're not divided by where we were born or where we've moved to since being born. We are, we, within Christ, there's no Scythian. There's no, there's no, there's no race. And, and, and the, the problem is, is a lot of us, you know, we, we bring some good stuff from our race, from our culture, from our background, and that's, that's fine. But the, the scary part is when we, when we hide behind that identity, and this is who I am, and when that becomes who you are, you're missing out. No, Christ is all and in all. Whatever, whatever benefits your skin color and your heritage bring to the table is great, but it has nothing at the cross. Every white person must bow at the cross, every brown person, every black person. All of these identities that we choose to identify ourselves with that really just divide us. Paul says, no, these, these things don't even exist in the kingdom of God. And it's true they exist out there and, and there's nothing we can do about it sometimes. And sometimes there is some stuff we can do about it. But in here, we cannot let it divide us. And finally, he says, there's no slave or free. Now, that's not really talking about slavery, although it's mentioning it. But really, it's, Roman slavery was more of a sort of social class system. Slave means really poor people. It's the lowest jobs. They got paid the least, did the stuff nobody wanted to do. Free, those are the CEOs, the owners of businesses, the ones with money. He says, in the kingdom of God, there's no rich people and there's no poor people. Now, now, out there, there is. We're all going to go to our different vehicles, and some vehicles will be very nice, and some vehicles will, some of us drive Ford Focuses, and uh, that's all right. <laughs> or a 2000 Ford F-150. It's making weird noises. I don't know what it's doing, but, but it's all good. 
Some, some, some of us drive, but then, but then some of us drive Lexus and BMWs, and that's good too. The truth is some of us are doing things out there that the world pays more money for, and that's fine. Uh, he, he, he's not against that. He's not like, well, everybody get rid of all your money. No, he's saying, look, in, in here, in the kingdom of God, if you, if you walk to church, you ought to get treated the same as if you'd pulled up in a Lexus. You ought, to be, you ought to get the same respect, the same love, the same connection. And if you pulled up in a Lexus, you ought to be treated the same respect. Because <laughs> sometimes we, you know, we, we look down on the big guy because it's like, <laughs> no, man, if God's blessed them, just be thankful. And maybe, maybe God will bless you too. And maybe you'll be driving a Lexus someday. I don't know. But in here, it really doesn't matter because all of us, all of us who are born of God have a really, really, really rich father. <laughs> all of us have access to unlimited resources, unlimited grace, unlimited favor, unlimited gifts, unlimited provision. We, we, we all have the same dad. Thus, we all have the same access to unlimited resources. <laughs> And that's what connects us. What connects us is, is far more important. Jesus is far more important than what divides us. And so in this place, it's got to be about Jesus. It's got to be not about any of these things. You can leave all that stuff. Your money cannot help you at all at the cross. And your lack of money and your, your supposed humility for not having much of it doesn't help you much at the cross either. Because he looks at all of us the same. He loves us the same, and he calls us like he was calling Bartimaeus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And just as we get ready to dismiss, I would just ask you, man, have you received Jesus? Do you have a new self, or are you still living in the old self? Have you, have you heard Jesus calling you? Has anybody come and told you the good news that he's calling you? That you don't have to live in the dark anymore. You don't have to stay in the cave anymore. You don't have to be trapped by, the, by your social class or your skin color or the way the world has pegged you and labeled you. But you can be free of all of that. You can just be a child of God. I don't know if anybody's told you that, but it's true. Scripture says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Bart did. He just called on him. It's available to you. If you'd like to call on him right now and receive him right now, would you just raise your hand and say, that's me. I want to call on him and reach out to him. That's awesome. That's awesome, yeah. So some hands going up. That's wonderful. Let's pray. But also, man, I feel like there's some people here that maybe you have a new self, but that new self needs to be made new again. <laughs> needs to be renewed. Some hands going up there. Yeah, just raise your hand and say, Lord, I need to be renewed. I need to be remade. In your image. This is, it's not a done deal yet. I, I need more of you. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we just call on you first and foremost for, for that new self. We ask for you. Uh, we ask for you to do what you said that you would do. That you have already paid the price by your death on the cross and resurrection. The empty grave tells us that your grace is enough for us. And so we receive that right now. We receive your grace. We put our faith and our trust in you and for the forgiveness of sins and for a new self. And Lord, we ask for you to renew us, make us new again. 
We ask for you to speak deeper things into us, delve deeper into our hearts. Let us become more fully in love with you, more fully submitted to you, less like our culture and more like you. May we not fall into these categories and divide ourselves and think of ourselves in these ways. These things don't exist in Christ. In you, we are free to be ourselves. We're free to be open and to receive your grace. In fact, you said that your grace is sufficient for us because your power is made perfect in our weakness. You prefer people who have weakness in their life so that you can use our weakness as a platform for your power. So we bring it out to you. We submit it to you. We ask for you to do what only you can do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.